many of you guys appreciate this man? Amen. Good morning. Y'all look good today. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for what uh, you've already been doing in the service today, Lord. And we just ask your continued blessing on the delivery of the word of God. Father, uh, may our hearts be open uh, and may we receive your word, Father God, with the intent and purpose of doing something with it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Pastor CJ said, we are continuing um, our series on identity. And uh, two Sundays ago, uh, we addressed the issue of self-image, how we see ourselves. Uh, those of you who are here for the first time, you know, we have this visual behind me on the steps, identity. And uh, we really believe that we ought to know our God. We ought to know how our God sees us. The way we see ourselves ought to match the way he sees us. It needs to be word-based, not emotion or feeling or circumstance-based, uh, not expectation-based and all those other things. Uh, we need to be rooted and grounded in God's word. Amen? And uh, so we learned that how we see ourselves is impacted by what lens we choose to see ourselves through. And after asking you to think about how you view yourself, I then challenged you to engage in some critical thinking. I said to you, however you see yourself, whatever your self-image is, seriously consider what lens you were looking at yourself through. We learned that there are many flawed lenses. Everybody say flawed lenses. That will cause us to develop a warped view of self if we choose to see ourselves through them. And those flawed, say flawed. Those flawed lenses included life experiences, past failures or successes, unmet expectations, hurts you suffered, what you do for a living, what others say about you, and really sometimes what you say about yourself, right? Negative self-speak. And pop culture. And that's not an exhaustive list by any means. It's all I had. And we learned that the only true lens is the word of God. And that our minds must be renewed to the point that we view ourselves through the lens of God's word. And what did God's word say about us? It said that it told us that we are greatly loved. And I said something a couple of weeks ago. I said, how can we consider ourselves unlovable when our God, our creator, gave his only begotten son? He so, the Bible said he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I was like, well, how dare we consider ourselves unlovable when our God loves us that much? Amen? So regardless of how you feel, you're loved. And I, you know what? I, I know there's a little bit of redundancy, and I'm, I'm rehashing, but man, uh, y'all just got to put up with it. It said that we are greatly loved, that we are created in the image of God, that we are a new creation in Christ, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ, that we are God's masterpiece. Say, I am God's masterpiece. That we are chosen by God. You weren't just left at God's doorstep. He chose you. Amen? That we are not condemned by him. That we are being continually interceded for by Christ. That we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ and that we are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Boy, that's a lot of good, isn't it? And at the conclusion of that message two weeks ago, we chose to let go of our defiled self-images. 
We even chose to renounce and discard the faulty lenses that defiled our self-images. And then we committed to making the word of God the preeminent authority in our lives. So today, in a way, I'm going to address the issue of what uh, motivates our behavior or our choices. And I kind of have a dual focus uh, this morning. And y'all have to bear with me because the Lord has kind of been shifting this as the hours and minutes have gone. So uh, it'll be what it'll be. Amen. <laughs> we'll just trust God. Uh, trust God for it. Um, the Bible tells us now, whenever we start talking about why we do what we do, I know it's pretty much, um, uh, typical. It's pretty much common that we spend a lot of time focusing particularly on the inward struggle, you know, cause there is an inward struggle. Um, I, I probably would ask you to raise your hands. I'm sure every hand should go up. Uh, unless you're walking in deception, every hand should go up. If I were to ask you, how many of you at times struggle to do what you know is right? Man, y'all are holy and sanctified. No, no, I didn't ask you to raise your hands. But we all do. We all struggle. You know, that's not, that the, that's not anything new. That's not anything that any of us are not familiar with because there is a sin nature at work, a sin nature that is in the process of being uh, sanctified, all right, if we're going about the business of walking with the Lord as we ought, amen? But the reason why I'm not going to really emphasize uh, that struggle so much today, and I've vacillated back and forth about whether I should or not, got like five pages of notes just in case. Uh, it's a little different, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm going to emphasize the inward struggle as much today in the way that it typically is. You know, why? Because is the sin nature at work? Is the carnal man contrary to the things of the spirit? Yes, but the Bible also tells me that I am no longer a slave to sin. Okay, so I'm not an unregenerate man. I'm not, if you belong to the Lord, okay, the sin nature is to be reckoned to be dead. We die to it in Christ, right? So the power that it once had over us, it no longer has over us. So we have the freedom to choose to either do right or do wrong. We're not, we're not slaves to that compulsion to do sin, right? If your Bible says something different, speak up. We'll throw that thing out and get you a new one. It also says that we are dead to the law. It doesn't mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, it doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to, you know, to, to obey the word of the Lord. It says that we are dead to the power of it to condemn us. See, Paul told us, and I'm going to, since I'm paraphrasing, Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, write them down in your notes, commit yourself to studying those. Uh, there is so much revelation and truth there that uh, I tell you can really transform, uh, transform your life, transform the way you think about uh, you're walking the Lord and your salvation and what you're capable of in God. You are free. You're no longer bound to the things that in our mind we bind ourselves by. So you are free from the power of sin. It doesn't mean sin isn't resident in that natural body and is trying to have its way, but it no longer rules you. And to the extent that we understand that, its influence in our lives will diminish and diminish and diminish. When we finally get to be like Paul, when Paul says, I die daily. I start every day with the mindset, sin, 
You're under control. You're under my control. You're under the control of the inward man. You don't rule me. I rule you. You don't have authority over me. In the name of Jesus, I have authority over you. I will ask you to go to Romans chapter 7 just briefly, though. I'm not emphasizing. (laughs) I will ask you to go there briefly. And then we'll get to some areas that I really kind of want to uh, focus on. But uh, and we'll, we'll start at verse 1. I'm reading in the NIV version. Just so that you have a reference there that tells us we died to the law or the power of the law to condemn us. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. That the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. All right? So so we were under the law. We were married to it. But in Christ, and we gave our hearts to the Lord, in Christ, when he died, we died with him. And so that contract that bound us with the law was annulled. And so we were free to be joined to another. Amen? And we're joined, and that uh, that another is Christ. Amen? Uh, Let's go on uh, to the next couple of verses. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Now, that's not what I'm going to highlight, but to me, that grabs my attention. The sinful passions in us aroused by the law. And I got to thinking about my own life. I have four daughters. Uh, they're wonderful daughters. Uh, even throughout the different challenging stages of growth. But isn't it human nature that when you tell us we can't do something, that's the very thing we want to do? You put a lot, you could not even be thinking about it, not struggling with it, but put a law out there about it. And all of a sudden, it arouses the passions. It makes you want to do the thing that you're told not to do. That's how sin works in us. It uses the law to arouse its sinful desires and tempt us to sin so that it can use the law to condemn us. That's what Paul said. So I look at, I just look at human nature and say, man, this is just so true. So for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. I'm not going to steal CJ's thunder, so I'm going to let that speak for itself. Uh, we're going to be going into uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, to finish out our series Uh, So I won't belabor that, but, and not in the old way of the written code. You know, I think as Christians, sometimes we make the mistake of adopting a law mindset that we shouldn't ought to adopt. And, And what do I mean by that? 
A law mindset is one where we are so focused on the letter of the law, we fail to acknowledge that sin is not our master anymore and that it cannot use the law to condemn us anymore. We adopt a performance-based mindset instead of a relationship-based mindset. We become so focused on performance, we neglect fellowship and relationship with our God. If we're performing well, God's pleased with us. That's how we feel. If we're not performing so well, he's done with us until we get our game back up. In truth, that's not God. Uh, And we've talked about the story of the prodigal son focusing on the father and seeing that that father never once considered that son anything other than his son. Despite the fact that the son was so humble, he was so contrite, he was... He was so down in the dumps that he didn't even think he could approach his father as a son. He approached, he approached him just wanting a job. He approached his father on the basis of performance. The father approached him on the basis of relationship. So let's join with God and approach him on the basis of relationship because he loves you. He chose you. He created you. He wants you. He wants relationship with you. If you are uncertain about relationship with him today or you don't know him, then I will implore you not to leave here today without talking to me or someone here in depth about it. Come Come up to me because I'll answer whatever questions I need answering to you because you have a God that created you. You have a God that loves you. You have a God that wants fellowship with you. You have a God that loved you so much he gave his only begotten son for you. All right. Uh, As I uh, prayerfully considered this uh, topic, I came to realize, and maybe because we're emphasizing uh, identity, you know, I came to uh, realize the correlation between identity, between how we see ourselves in God and how we behave. Does anybody, does this this speak to anyone? Or are we going to have to flesh it out a little more? What we think in our hearts, particularly concerning God's word, God's character, our relationship with him, and our self-image, influences our behavior. That's why Proverbs 4.23, and that's really the first the first uh, verse that I really want to emphasize today, because that, that, that's the one that really speaks to what I'm going to talk about today. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, the New Living Translation says it this way, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. I like that. For today's discussion, for today's message, heart equals the inner man. In its moral significance, it includes the affections, the emotions, the reason, the will. The inner man. What we think in our hearts concerning the word of God, the character of God, our relationship with God and our self-image will influence what we expose our hearts to. And it will influence what we ultimately yield ourselves to. Now, Satan knew this very well in the beginning. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 3. That's how he got Adam and Eve to fall in the Garden of Eden. He caused doubt in their hearts 
concerning what God said. Think about it. What did he do? What is his tactic? What is his scheme? He caused doubt in their hearts concerning what God said, God's character, their relationship with God, and how they viewed themselves. Their serpent-induced change in perspective in those areas influenced the behavior that led to their fall. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God really say? He's starting to introduce seeds of doubt. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. What did he say? You will not certainly die. It's not a given. You sure about that? So he immediately begins to cast doubt in their hearts about what God said, about the truth of what God said. And then he offers something else. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he begins to sow doubt about the character of God. So not only did he sow doubt about what God said, but now he's tackling God's character. And I'm hoping you're seeing these tactics that are used against you in your heart where you either doubt God's word or you're doubting God or questioning God's character for various reasons. But he basically said God is holding out on you. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So that one statement both attacks God's character and and attacks their self-image. See, we already know from Genesis 1 that he created them in his image. That they're already like him. But he just said, oh, 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 but you're not really. God knows that if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him. And he's not ready for that. And after he did that, look at, look at the woman's perspective change. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, the fall didn't just happen. When we fall, It doesn't just happen. There is a process and strategy at play here that is designed to win over the heart. The enemy wants to win over your heart. God wants your heart. He doesn't just want your blind obedience. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you doing something for the fear of consequence. He wants you to do something for the love of doing right, for the love of obeying him, for the love of pleasing his heart, for the love of him. Amen? And the enemy knows that if he comes at you just flat out, point blank, just blunt in your face, you're probably going to rebuff the enemy's advances. But if he needles you a little bit, And he sows a seed of doubt here, a seed of doubt there. Gets you, gets you a little shaky on God's word. Gets you a little squirrely about God's character. All of a sudden, you're a little double-minded. You're not sure about things. And then he just, he just leaves you to your own devices. And he, 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 what he's done is he has set your heart. He set your mindset on a course that has a dead end. And he'll just see if you'll just let yourself follow that course all the way to the dead end. He can't make you do anything. Remember, he's a defeated foe. But he can throw something out there and let you defeat yourself. Now, 
I'll repeat, there's a process and strategy at play here that is designed to win over the heart. They didn't eat the forbidden fruit until after their esteem for God's word had diminished. Two, their trust in God had diminished. And three, their view of self became something other than what God said. And isn't that our plight a lot of times when we get ourselves in trouble? You don't have to say, man, I know it's true. Consider this. The serpent didn't tell them to eat the fruit. At least that's not how I read it. Uh, I've already said this, but he simply sowed seeds of doubt and gave them the opportunity to put on the flawed lens he offered them. In their hearts, they began to see God in themselves through a serpent-inspired lens. And once that happened, their behavior changed from obedience to disobedience. Satan's playbook hasn't changed in all these years. It's still the same playbook. Heck, he even used the same playbook on Jesus in the wilderness when he tempted him. He tempted the last Adam. He used the same playbook against the last Adam that he used against the first. But the last Adam has something for him. I'm not going to ask you to not, not going to ask you to turn there. But uh, when he was in the wilderness, the tempter came to Jesus and said. Notice here, if you are the son of God, strikes right at his identity. All right? Prove it. Show me something. Perform. And Jesus didn't take the bait. He said, as is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he tried another uh, tactic. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple Again, he tacked him at his identity. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He's starting to twist the word a little bit for it is written. And I'm reading out of Matthew four, verse one, 11. If it drives you crazy not to be where, uh, where I am, uh, I'm at Matthew four verses one through 11. He said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. He wants them to perform again to prove something. Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, he reveals his hand completely showing that he really wants Jesus' heart, his full devotion. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, get away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. That's where the enemy wants to attack us, right at our identity. He wants to attack our view, our image of God, the character of our God. He wants to attack our identity because he knows if he can get us rocky there, he's put us in a, a state of chaos that's going, to, that's going to end up causing us to follow crooked paths and doing things that we know we shouldn't ought to do. Identity is a powerful thing, man. A confidence is a powerful thing. I remember before I knew that I was good as an athlete, you know, before I really knew the potential of what I could do with my athleticism, before I even, I, I didn't envision college, I didn't envision, envision pro, I didn't envision where it could take me. And so there was no discipline in my life in order to hone those skills early on. But something changed around ninth grade. And all of a sudden, you know, vision 
was instilled. All of a sudden, I got to see potential of achieving something that I previously did not believe I could achieve. In my heart, I began to know I'm pretty daggone good at this. I could do something with this. I can get a degree. I can make a career. And all of a sudden, just that shift in what I, in my confidence and my abilities, it, it transformed my behavior. You know, the stuff I used to eat, it, it changed what I ate, it changed what I drank, it changed where I went, it changed how late I stayed out, all those things, but it started in the heart. It wasn't, it wasn't just something that I was trying to do that wasn't in here. To me, that's why the enemy tries to get at your heart. If he can reach your heart, he can, he'll possess it like reins and he, and he can influence your behavior by changing you in here. That's why a, a, a precious young woman who is struggling with anorexia, you can shake her, you can try to talk sense into her and try to get her to change behavior, but as long as she thinks she's obese in here, she's going to do what she's going to do. Same with an alcoholic, same with a drug addict. If they, uh, until something changes in here, until there's a vision that arises of them being something different than what they're struggling with, they're going to stay on that path. Are you hearing me? A child that will not apply themselves and that will not go to school, take their education seriously and so forth, until they get a vision, until something changes in here, the parents going to have to be on them 24-7, making them do that which they're not motivated to do on their own. And we spend a lot of time focusing on behavior when we, de- when we would be best served dealing with the heart. If we can reach the heart, if we can somehow reach the heart with the truth, if we can sometime, somehow instill vision in the heart, and allow that to germinate and allow that to do inward work that would motivate the person to change. Amen? The law, that was the weakness of the law. It couldn't change you. It could punish you. Heck, look at our legal system today. There's a lot of criminals second, third, fourth offenses. Fines and jail doesn't necessarily change behavior because the legal system is not necessarily designed to change hearts and minds. It's designed to deal with people who get out of line. Amen? I believe the I believe the church, I believe Christians, I believe God's people are going to uh, are needed in order to uh, step up and to reach hearts and minds. So what we do is not just, it's not just random. What we do is a matter of the heart. Who we choose to associate with, where we choose to go, where our interests are, all that emanates from what's inside. And we we cannot divorce the actions from the heart. (laughs) Amen? Amen. And once we learn how God sees us and embrace God's view of us as our own, only then can we truly see others 
as God sees them. Only then can we truly love them with the love of Christ. Then we'll be able to see clearly how to reach people's hearts with the glorious gospel of Christ. And I'm going to, I'm still doing all right on time, brother. I want to uh, turn your attention to John chapter 8, verse 1. It's kind of a dual focus. I just wanted to emphasize that why we do what we do is a matter of the heart, both on our individual actions, uh, the behavior that we do that uh, maybe only affects us and no one else, but it also affects how we see and how we treat other people. And I want you to be mindful of that as we read a couple of passages that you guys are very, very familiar with, no doubt. Uh, one is John chapter 8, verse 1, the woman caught in adultery. And I want you to see the difference between how Jesus sees this woman and how others see her. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. It still blows my mind how one person gets caught in adultery, but we'll, uh, I'll leave you all to ponder that. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, in the law, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, I love this, and started to write on the ground with his finger. Didn't say a word to him. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Now, now, now think about that. You have a crowd of people, all of which, obviously, by their actions, they're all guilty of sin. And yet, here they are standing in judgment of this woman, ready to stone her to death. And Jesus really deals with them at their heart. He cuts their hearts to the quick. All right, all right, I'm not even going to argue law with you. Okay, that's what the law says. I agree with you. All right, all I'm going to say is let the first one, whoever's without sin, you be the first one to cast the stone. And every person, every accuser dropped their stone and left because they were not without sin. And notice how he deals with the woman. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, Jesus could have gotten up on his soapbox and preached a fire and brimstone message to her, and it would not have had a fraction of the impact of what he did here, that, that what he did here did. He defended her to her accusers. He knew she was guilty. He says, where are your accusers? They're gone. Nobody's condemning you. All your condemners are left. They're gone. Yes, sir. Well, I'm still here and I don't condemn you. And he responded to her on the basis of relationship. He, he, he responded to her on the basis of love, not performance. You know what? You didn't perform very well. I, I, I'm not very proud of your actions. But he assured her that he didn't condemn her, but he also told her, Leave your life of sin. You think he might have got a hold of her heart? Huh? 
I bet that absolutely transformed her life. But, but even more so, it's a glimpse into the heart of our Lord. He came to seek and to save them that were lost. He said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I think that as we, as our identity is transforming and we're not standing in self-judgment and self-condemnation all the time, that we're, we're not seeing God in, in, in a almost blasphemous light uh, where uh, envisioning him being that, 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 that God with a hammer just ready to judge us and condemn us at every turn, that once that warped sense of, that warped view of self and God gets corrected, then, then we are free and we can be open to see others the way God intended us to see them and to love them as he loves them. The law can punish, but it can't reach hearts. Transforming change does not come about by fear of consequence. Because the moment I feel like I can get away with it without being caught, my motivation is gone. You know, I've got to want to do right. Uh, Luke 19, this is the last verse. Luke 19, verse 1. Little short man, Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be, to be the guest of a sinner. Obviously, Zacchaeus didn't have the best of reputations, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, he was a scoundrel. He was a thief. He was a chief tax collector, and he did, he did things dirty. And there was a lot of people who had suffered at the hands of, uh, of him. Uh, my girls who remember the Disney movie Robin Hood, she, he's the sheriff of Nottingham. And Jesus, in front of everybody, calls him down and tells him, hey, man, I'm coming to, I'm coming to your house tonight. I'm staying with you. A sinner, a guy with a bad reputation, he invites himself. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, but here's that change in heart. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, Salvation came to see, uh, today's salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, now the woman who caught an adultery didn't come to Jesus on her own. Her accusers brought her to him. Yet, Jesus loved her the same. Zacchaeus is kind of like the prodigal son. He heard about Jesus. His heart was one that pursued Jesus. He wanted to know him. 
He wanted to see him. He wanted to meet him. And that's really what all God wants. He wants a heart that wants to get to know him. You know, if you can give him that, I see it. If you can give him that, that's all he needs. He just wants your heart. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all together. You just got to humble yourself and want him. And salvation can come to you as it came to Zacchaeus. And, and this, this message, for the most part, was directed at the church. Um, as God is transforming the way we see him, the way we see ourselves, uh, as he continues to do that work, I believe it's going to transform the way that we see our mission field, the way that we see the harvest, the way that we see and treat one another, because the Bible says that as disciples of his, they ought to be able to see the love that we have one for, one for another. You know, they ought to see Jesus in the way that we treat one another. And this might come to a shock, as a shock to you, you know, we, we, we don't always... Reflect Jesus in how we treat each other. I didn't know if that was you or the baby, man. But uh, look at that. Isn't isn't that a good-looking father over there, man? Over there patting the (laughs) baby. I know the missus over there, she put her head down because she probably said he ain't up at 3 o'clock in the morning, though. (laughs) but uh, but I just want to encourage you um, just know how the enemy operates his game plan is not any different than it was in the garden than it was in the wilderness he wants to attack how you see God your relationship with God your view of the character of God and your self-image. And where you have allowed him to get away with that and in some cases even partnered with him, you know, you need to just put a stop to it and say, no more. I'm not believing the lies. I'm not giving place to the enemy, I'm not entertaining any more of the enemy's subtle tactics, subtle schemes, subtle lies, subtle jabs that are designed to get me off track and get me on rocky ground. I see now what he's been doing. I see now that he has just got the ball rolling and it's allowed me to take it from there. And I've been a party to the enemy's schemes in my life, cooperating with his plan for my life, And basically steering myself, letting him start it, but then taking the wheel and steering myself where the enemy wants me to go. But I hope you remember those are the areas that he, those four areas is where he attacks. Different tactics, different schemes, same objective. And he'll get us if we let him. That's why it says that he's seeking whom he may devour. Because he knows who he may devour, it depends on, you know, that depends. If you know who you are and you're rock solid in who God is and your relationship with him, then he'll have no place in you. But if you let him shake you up and you begin to entertain some of the nonsense he, he plants in your mind, then he'll have his way. Uh, I'm going to ask you all to stand. Let's let's pray. Father God, 
We just thank you for the identity that we have in you. Uh, we just thank you for your word, Father, and the, the life that is available to us uh, through your word and in Christ Jesus, Father God. Father God, we just invite your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, to do the work in our hearts, Father. Father, allow these truths to become real to us, Father. Convict us concerning these truths, Father, that we will take what we hear and put it into practice. We won't just be hearers and say, oh, that sounded nice, or I'm, or, or, I'm just, I wasn't too sure about that, so I'll just let it be. No, Father God. Uh, Holy Spirit, convict us. Holy Spirit, give us the conviction that we will search it out if we're not sure, that we will ask questions if we're not sure, that we want to know that what was preached, is that the word of God? Did God say that? And if he did say that, I want to understand that so that I can trans be transformed by this knowledge, be transformed by this word of truth. I want to be a doer of that word if it is what God said. So, Father, I just ask that you would uh, that you would do that in our hearts, Father. Quicken us, uh, convict us, Father God. Uh, give us that de that holy determination, Father God, to dig into your Word of God, to your Word, O oh God. I ask your blessing on the covenant groups tonight, Father God, as they uh, endeavor to uh, dial to discuss these things, Father. And uh, and I just trust that uh, you're going to do something amazing in every group, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.